Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter 3. Paul, could, could I have you flip this? Would you mind? Just a reminder that tomorrow night is our big event here at this location. Uh, we redo that. Uh, Mike Thigpen is coming. If you have not registered, we still have a couple spots left. Uh, and if you didn't register and tomorrow night you say, you know what, I do think I want to come, come. We'll still have space and we've got plenty of food. Uh, you don't want to miss this event. Uh, Mike Thigpen serves as the executive director of the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, and you're saying, well, what is that? That's a group of about 5,000. It's a who's who among scholars, uh, Bible professors. Tom's son, Andrew, who teaches at Wheaton, I know is a member. Uh, in fact, he's presenting, Tom, I don't know if you knew that, at the annual event. So uh, it's to have Tom here, or to have uh, Mike here is going to be very significant. I I'm looking forward to having him come. And so if you've not registered, love to have you. Uh, it's open to anyone, men, women, etc. So, um, and many thanks to Robert and Woodland Country Club for all you guys do for us. That's fantastic. Well, let's go to the text today. And just a reminder, those of you who've just joined us, uh, first part of this epistle uh, of 1 Peter, the author, that is the Apostle Peter, deals with our salvation and the, and the things that are attached with it, the promise that's been given, the praise that's granted, and so forth. And out of that, he teases four commands. Because of what God has done, we need to have hope. We need to, to walk in holiness. We need to fear God, and we need to love one another. And so those commands is what drive then the relationships that we've been looking at. He looked at what relationships have we encountered? What does Peter address? He deals with our relationship, well, obviously husbands and wives. What's another relationship that he teases out these commands? Authority. <clears throat> with authority, the government, uh, and there's one other, masters and slaves. And so he, he, he's trying to take the, uh, have the rubber meet the road is what he's trying to accomplish. So, you know, so what your theology here is, what does that mean? What we call that here, the intersect. How does that connect with what we know? And so that's what he's trying to accomplish. And it's last week we, we looked at a very difficult topic, husbands and wives, and a couple of you emailed me with some questions, and that's fine. Uh, I thought this was some, this is not a biblical advice, but someone sent this to me. I thought it was really funny. Laughing at your own mistakes lengthens your life. Laughing at your wife's mistake shortens it. <laughs> <coughs> That is not in First Peter, but it is, uh, and, and I, I love this. This is a Harley Davidson sign. For an additional four ninety five, we'll provide a receipt that matches what you told your spouse you paid. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh dear. Uh, oh yes. Well, let's get to the text and let's look what we have here in First Peter. Finally, in chapter three, verse eight, Paul or Peter writes, "Finally." All of you, so now it's, he kind of draws this net across the, the social stratosphere, the, the economic sphere, whether you're slaves, masters, whatever you are, you need to be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead bless others because you were called to inherit a blessing. He takes this, and it's, it, it's really kind of the capstone and summary of all that he's talked about. 
some scholars call this the hinge in the entire book, this little section. And very significant, he uh, quotes from Psalm 34. Notice what he says in verse 10. For the one who wants to love life, see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from uttering deceit. This is not the first time he quotes from this psalm. Uh, and there's entire monographs, entire books that have been written on Psalm 34 and its relationship to 1 Peter. We could, we'll spend some time there today looking at this. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are, are open to their prayer, but the Lord's face is against those who do evil. Let's look at this. In the opening section, he deals with five descriptors. He says, listen, to those that uh, are part of God's family, he says, number one, you need to be harmonious. And as I mentioned there in your notes, this is a call to unity. Uh, I wrote, while the church may be a collection of saints, she's also a group of sinners saved by grace. Uh, it's, uh, do a little study in the New Testament in the early church. Uh, Paul, Peter, James, they all talk about unity within the body of Christ. I saw a sign once that said, we're a, a, first, we're a New Testament church. I, I want to say, I'm not sure that's how I want to label myself. If it's Philippi, sure. If it's Corinth, we've got a problem. But even at Philippi, right, you got Odie and Stinky. you got Odia and Syntyche who can't get along. So he's saying, listen, we need unity within the church. We also need sympathy. Again, think about those commands that he's, he's teased out and woven those through the relationships. He's kind of drawing this all back together. He says we need to be sympathetic. In other words, we need to enter into the experience of others. You as a group do that so well. Keep it up. Um, I remember when uh, Terry Michael passed away, his wife uh, texted me and she said, you'll never know what iron to iron meant to him. So thank you. Many of you remember him. Uh, same with Chung Man's wife and even Bob McCullough. So thank you. Keep it up. It's, it's showing sympathy. Another descriptor that he gives is that you need to be loving one another. Kind of goes without saying. And it's intriguing, this, this list of five, love is in the center, and it's also grammatically in the center, which is intriguing. And some scholars have argued, and I, I think they may be right, that this is the overarching uh, principle here that he's looking for, that Peter is stressing, is love. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? And uh, so you can see that there. He also mentions compassion. Compassion is giving feet and hands to love. Uh, it's, it's doing something demonstratively to show that you love someone. And he says that needs to mark it. And then finally, humility. Even the secular world understands the significance of this in leadership uh, is, is that uh, we need to be humble. All the way back to Proverbs throughout the, the, the New Testament, it is stressed. And so he says in this summary, this capstone, this is what we need to be looking at. Someone who's harmonious. Uh, you think about the re not just in the relationships of husband and wife, not only in master and slave, but this needs to govern you as a body of believers. Some churches do this well, and some miss the mark, right? Uh, Ichabod, that means the glory of the Lord has departed, needs to be sprayed on some churches. 
Um, this, this, is, this is so foreign to them. Uh, harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. Then he says something in verse 9 that's very significant. He says, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. This is not the first time. It's a variation of what he has said before. And he's going to tease this out again with Psalm 34. But he, because he says, because you were called to inherit a blessing. At least this is how the, the Net Bible renders it. And this is, I'm going to disagree with the Net Bible here in a minute. We'll sh I'll show you what's going on, I think. Um, I changed my view of this passage, and I'll explain that here in a second, because it ties up with the, in this you were called. It's the latter part of verse 9. First, we, we're told not to respond in evil for those who do evil to us or insult, and that's pretty straightforward, right? I always said the litmus test of this is, what, what do you like behind a steering wheel, <laughs> right? The person drives out in front of you, oh, you crazy fool blow the horn, uh, how you're responding, right? Or, or I, I said there's two more litmus tests. You know those little litmus papers, remember that? In science class, it tells whether it's acidic or not. Uh, I said behind a steering wheel, out on a golf course, or interaction with a disrespectful child. <laughs> uh, how do you respond? Uh, do you respond in anger to their anger, insult? Well, you say that, well, let me tell you this. You're, my two kids in the back seat, right? You're an idiot. Well, you're a moron, you know, so you're, you're hearing this. No, 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 no. That's not how it is to govern us. But it's this latter part that's really difficult. Um, in the Greek, it literally says, in this you were called. And, and the question that scholars are arguing is, what is this? What are we talking about? And there's two major views, and hopefully I can do justice to the two views. The first one states... No, we're looking um, forward grammatically. In other words, the this is your inheritance. And so thus, one blesses because he or she has been blessed. They tie this back to 1 uh, Peter 1, right? Our wonderful inheritance, our salvation. Because of what God has done, you should bless others. I love that view. It fits theologically so well with my paradigm and that's the view that I espoused. However, after further study, uh, even this past week, I've changed. Uh, and this one fits better grammatically as a whole. And what this one is looking backwards, in other words, one blesses because he or she desires to be blessed. In other words, if you don't bless your enemy, God will not bless you. It's a difficult because, as I mentioned on page two, stay with me for a second, on page two here, <clears throat> this rendering would seem to suggest that one is saved ultimately by doing good works, right? If you don't bless, you won't be blessed. You won't have an inheritance. And so most of us in the room would have a real problem with that because we would argue that Salvation is by grace alone, not by works, lest any man should boast, right? Ephesians 2. And so what do you do with this? And, and how do you explain this? Well, I've given you some text here in your notes, uh, and I've asked the question, what evidence from Peter, first of all, would we cite that clearly teaches salvation is by grace alone? What text would we appeal to, or what, 
What does Peter tell us earlier in the book? This is, what did he tell us about our salvation? What did he say? Help me out. You know what I'm asking? What did, what did Peter state about our salvation? It's, it's not earned, right? We're blessed by God and Father Yeah, we're blessed by God. It's an inheritance that He has provided. It's an inheritance that He keeps. Right? Our security rests in Him. Right? It doesn't appear that you can lose your salvation. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, it's His mercy. This sounds a whole lot like Ephesians 2, doesn't it? 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, and that gives some of us, at least for me, it gives me a little bit of a rash. I get a little nervous when people say, well, you need to work out your salvation. And, and if you take the second rendering that we had mentioned, that's exactly what we're saying here, is that you won't be blessed uh, if you don't bless others. In other words, when you're insulted, when someone does evil, you don't retaliate. Because if you do, then you've got a problem. Notice the text again, verse 9, do not return evil for evil or insult, but bless because you desire to be blessed. I think what we have is what, Tim, you've mentioned, and, and also James 2. James 2, remember, says, faith without works is what? Dead. For Peter, for the early church, if you have professed Christ, if there really has been a change, then you will show that by the fruit that you're bearing. Yeah, Dan. Verse 7 of chapter 1, proving the genuineness of your faith, even though you're blind by fire, uh, but in a perfect place to say, uh, if you need to keep it up so that you have faith, uh, not the other way around. Correct. Um, I, I think I mentioned this in the, it's the last by a Puritan, we are not justified by doing good works, but being justified when we do good. That's what we're dealing with here. And Peter's saying, if, if this is true, if you truly are a follower of the Lord, you're going to respond accordingly because it ensures that truly you are His. Now, Schreiner gives a little caveat here, which I think is very important. It's in your notes. He says, Paul was hardly suggesting that believers will live perfectly and that such perfection is necessary to obtain an inheritance. There are some who have taught that we can be 100% sanctified this side of eternity. I've been waiting for them to write a book um, to tell us how. Peter says, but he was insisting that a transformed life is necessary to obtain an inheritance. Again, I think it goes back to James. Faith without works is dead. You can give lip service all day long, but if there is not love, compassion, reverence, and all these things that we've looked at, if, if this is not springing out of your life, then we've got a serious problem. 
support for this, I think, is found in Psalm 34. We'll get to that in a minute. But questions on this? Because the first, this can be a little, yes. Good, thank you. Yeah. The thought to me would be that Jerry. sanctification is a process. Nobody's going to do this perfectly, but the closer we, the more we grow in sanctification, the closer we'll be to perfected in this, and that's where the blessing comes. That's right. The blessing, it, it is a process. Um, it's intriguing to me as I look at Peter, James, and John, and you look at their writings, uh, they're very black and white. There's no middle ground. Either you are on fire for God and trying to live for Him, or you're over here, and we got a problem. The two don't intermeet. In fact, 1 John 3 says, uh, verse 6, a believer doesn't sin. The NIV tries to smooth it out by saying a believer doesn't continually sin. It's not habitual. What I think John is saying is a believer is not characterized by sin. Did he say you, we still could sin? Yeah, 1 John 1. If, if we sin, confess it, and God will forgive, right? But it, it shouldn't characterize a believer's life. And yes, <clears throat> the NET takes the first rendering. They, they take this because you have had a blessing, then y- you should bless. So, well, it's called to inherit a blessing because you were called to inherit a blessing. Yes. So that blessing may not be the blessing of salvation, but there are other blessings that come with obedience. Good. Great question. I, um, I think what we're dealing with, and most scholars would agree that first and foremost, in, in Peter's mind, it's an eternal issue that we're dealing with. Uh, back to chapter 1. Let me just, great question. Chapter 1, verse 13. Yes, and, and what does he say to the elect by, in verse 13 of chapter 1? Getting ready, setting your hope on when Christ is revealed, which is a phrase that's used frequently in 1 Peter. He, he is looking eternal. This is what he wants. That does not nullify, and I agree with you, uh, there's also this temporal blessing, the present blessing. In fact, let me get to that because it's a great question, and I think it's teased out with Psalm 34. Uh, if we had time, I'd read the entire psalm. We don't have that, but I challenge you to go back and look at it. As I mentioned, Psalm 34 is vital to 1 Peter. <clears throat> Some scholars state you can't even uh, outline this book. You can't study 1 Peter without looking at Psalm 34. And it's intriguing to me because what is Psalm 34? Psalm 34 is written by David on the whole issue with Abimelech. Remember that? What did he do? David acted like he was crazy <clears throat> so that he could be delivered. And Psalm 34 is a praise to God for delivering him. In the midst of suffering, God was faithful. What a great epistle 
or a great psalm for this group of people that Peter's writing to, right? It's very significant because the psalm calls for praise to the Lord for deliverance. It's the very thing his audience needs. And that psalm also talks about, by the way, that we need to be faithful. And that's what he's reminding, Peter's reminding his readers, as was seen in the Old Testament through the life of David. And by the way, he's going to get to Christ at the end of chapter 3. So he uses David as exhibit A. He's going to use Christ as exhibit B to remind his readers, even in the midst of suffering, you got to be faithful because God will deliver. And God will also judge if you are not faithful. That's whole, Psalm 34 ends that way. In fact, well, turn to Psalm 34. We got to see this. Look at Psalm 34. It's not that long. <clears throat> this is so significant. I, as I was studying this text, my wife goes, man, you're spending a lot more time on this lesson. I said, I know, because I'm changing everything I've ever thought about this passage. It's driving me nuts. <clears throat> but I, I really think uh, uh, Piper, David's, and others who've looked at this, I think they're right. At the end of this psalm, starting in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. What a great reminder for the Peter's audience. No wonder Psalm 34 is on the forefront of Peter when he writes his epistle. He's already cited from Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember that back in chapter 2? A text that's used for every cookbook and churches that they print. Yes? <clears throat> which cracks me up because it's in the whole context of Lord, deliver me. So deliver me from Aunt Betsy's uh, casserole, right? But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. <clears throat> Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What a promise. And Peter latches onto that psalm, he throws it into his epistle to his audience who are suffering. He says, you need to hold fast to the word of God because God is faithful. He will deliver you even in the midst of the suffering. He may not deliver you, deliver the pain. Uh, he, he may be using that in your life so that you, you will glorify him. But notice, let's go back to 1 Peter and look at this as he quotes. He says, Quoting from Psalm 34, the one who wants to love life and see good days. That phrase is intriguing, as I mentioned in your notes, there in the middle of page two. Most scholars will argue that this is referring to a future blessing. Here's where you were asking the question. <clears throat> and I agree with you, it's not just for the future, it's also the present. Because Psalm 34 talks about the present blessings, and so does First Peter. But there is an eternal idea that's driving them. Even Psalm 34 as it ends, we're, we're looking at the future blessing, but there's also a present blessing, right? And this enjoying life is the, the psalmist states that's echoed in 1 Peter, suggests an enjoyment of life and contentment in the life that he has given, no matter the circumstances. In other words, I mean, that's... that's, that's flesh this out. What does that mean? That means there's an absence of grumbling, worrying, complaining, or bitterness in the life of a believer. It should be forward. That's hard, right? That you have life is to praise God. Some of you know Don Lawton. His wife, Molly, is, has no brain activity. It happened two days ago. She's in the hospital. I went to see Don. Don goes, you know what? 
the Lord is the giver of life. And I rest in that. And he says, if he takes Molly's life, that means uh, she's going to be with him forever. If he, he leaves, he restores her life, then great, we can serve the Lord for a little bit longer here on this globe. That's the perspective of Scripture, isn't it? Rather than cursing God or cursing those around you, grumbling, anger, etc., th- that's not loving life that God has given. Again, go back to 1 Peter 1. What a glorious inheritance we have not just for fire insurance for the future, also for the present. And as a result, it's what, I mean, all of this is just, it's what Paul says in Romans 12. This is our reasonable service. We shouldn't look like a bunch of frozen chosen walking around. And we should be some of the most happy group of guys you've ever seen, right? Look what God has done for us and what he's doing for us and what he will do for us. That's, That's what's driving all this. And so the response then, he says, because we, we love life and we just relish in God's blessing, he gives then some instruction. He says, righteous conduct is a proper use of the tongue. Ouch, here we go, right? You keep your tongue from evil and your lips from uttering deceit. <clears throat> Remember Steve Green, the Christian artist from years gone by? <clears throat> He used to sing a little song, keep your tongue from evil, and then all the kids had to hold their tongue and sing it. I hung from evil, right? It's probably good advice. There's times when we just need to pinch the tongue uh, and refrain. And, of course, Scripture is very clear. It's the barometer of the heart. Whatever comes out of the lips is from the heart. And think about Isaiah when he sees the Lord in Isaiah 6. What does he say? I'm a man of unclean hands? No. Unclean mind? No. A hand clean lips. Right? It's the huge barometer. James talks about it as well. It's why I, I see James coming through loud and clear in Peter. Um, don't you? Uh, this whole focus on faith and then playing out and works. And what does that look like? It's the tongue. Secondly, he says we're performing acts of goodness. Uh, this reiterates chapter 2, verse 9. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 in First Peter. 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood of holy nation, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I quote Piper here. He says, therefore, the desire to enjoy, and he mentions eternal life in 3.10, should motivate a person to bless those who revile him. Why? Why should we, as believers, Bless the one who reviles us. Because one, we know where our inheritance lies. If anything, you feel sorry for the person. Right? <clears throat> Secondly, it would be for their salvation. And third is, is, is our desire to, to glorify God in our obedience. Yep. I was reading uh, Proverbs 25 <clears throat> this morning, and it reminded me of what you were saying. It says, if your enemy is hungry... <clears throat> give him water to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head, and the mm. Lord will reward you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, later, Peter even says in verse 14, just showing our cards, it says, in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. I, you know, uh, that's, that's what we're looking for, right? 
And, and again, the focus he will give later is Christ. Right now he's looking at Psalm 34 in light of how David responded. And then the third command that comes out of this is actively seeking peace. Do you realize, well, let me show you. Turn to chapter 1 again at the very opening of this letter. <clears throat> end of chapter, or, or verse, end of chapter, or verse 2, chapter 1, 1, 2. What does it say? May grace and what? Peace be yours in full measure. Turn to chapter 5, verse 14, the very last sentence of this book. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This entire epistle is bookended by peace. It's what should govern the believer. In the midst of suffering, peace is a great thing. <laughs> Knowing that God is sovereign is, is, is great peace. And we see that through this book. That's the proper conduct. And then as he closes in his quotation of Psalm 34, he's very clear. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Indication, by the way, that, that, that he is going to care for you. He's going to see that you are his to the end. But then it says, the Lord's face is against those who do evil. That phrase is very clear. It speaks of judgment. There are consequences for those who fail to seek the Lord. And that is, that's eternal damnation. And that, the face against him is clear. Psalm 34 highlights that as well. Well, what do you do with this? And there, there's a lot more we could say, but I, I've teased out two things based on our text this morning. First of all, an eternal perspective creates an eclipse of the temporal pleasures of life and exposes our self-centeredness. I mentioned our eschatology, the study of end times, is always Christological, meaning the study of Christ, and not anthropological. <laughs> the problem with most philosophy, it starts with man rather than starting with God. That's the beauty of theology. We start with God, not man. And you just, just listen to the rhetoric today on the news. Listen to what people are saying. It's so earthly-focused and what Peter's trying to tell the believers is, yeah, we live in this, we're not, you know, we need to be salt in this world, that's true, but our focus is eternal, for Christ appearing. And that's what we should be longing for. In fact, when he gets to Second Peter, he highlights of all the events that he experienced in the life of Christ, he appeals to the transfiguration. Why? Because he saw Christ in all his glory. And you can't help but Peter thinking, Peter's thinking, hey, you ain't seen nothing yet. I saw Christ in all his glory. And, and, and that should drive us to do what we do and to live for him because there's something great about to happen. In the text that I read earlier, I read again in, in verse, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, therefore get your minds ready for action, being fully sober, and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Piper, in an article that he wrote back in the 1980s, argued that hope is the, the, the motivator for the entire book. And I think there's some truth to that because we look to what Christ is going to do. Questions on this? Comments? <clears throat> Isn't that... Uh, huh. it, focusing on the eternal changes our entire perspective on suffering even in the present. 
that's what I noticed yesterday with Don Lawton as I talked to him. He's got an internal perspective. Yeah, this hurts. It's awful. Um, I'm going to miss her if she's the Lord should take her. But I'm not God. He's in control. Well, <clears throat> I'm starting to preach, so let me give you another one. This statue is at Dallas Seminary. That's where I went for my master's. And it's in the courtyard area. And I'd often pass it. It's very powerful. It's Christ washing the feet of Peter. And I thought of that as, as studying this text. If Christianity is Christ, and if Christ is compassion, and you could put a whole ton of adjectives here, but love, humility, and grace, then Christianity's finest expression is compassion, love, humility, and grace. Right? They should see Christ. And what is Christ? He's one who who did not revile. In fact, that's where Peter's going because in chapter 3, as he lays this out, look at chapter 3, verse 18, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God, I mean, putting to death in the flesh. He says, he did all this, and he says in verse 16, he did this. Um, well, look what the text says. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience that those who slander you in good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you because Christ did not respond, you shouldn't respond. And the reason he did this is for your salvation. So, <clears throat> great reminder, turn to Colossians. Let's just look at this. Colossians chapter 3. We'll end here with this text. Colossians 3 verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore... As the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, right? That's 1 Peter 1. That's your inheritance. Clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. Sounds familiar? Yes. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also forgive others. And to all these virtues add love, which is the perfect bond. Again, sounds a lot like 1 Peter chapter 3. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, think about this, going back to 1 Peter, whether it's in your relationship with the government, if it's slaves and masters, if it's husbands and wives, he says, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. That's what governs our life. And so this inheritance we have should naturally result in good works right that should be the response that's what we're looking for not that that's what saves us but it naturally flows from someone who is saved right <clears throat> questions it's a powerful text and I, and I, I think most commentators that I'm reading are in agreement now because of the grammar. It's so clear that Peter is not saying we do this because we have this great inheritance. It's because we do this because we long for that great inheritance. And it shows that we're truly his. Well, I'm preaching to the choir because you all are doing this well. Just keep it up. Loving one another, showing compassion and humility. Why? Because Christ displayed that. And so did those who went before us, such as David. All right. Well, let me close in prayer. Uh, if you would, continue to pray, by the way, for Dan 
and Johnson with his job search, and I know there's some others in the room as well. I'll be lifting them up. <clears throat> Father, we come to you, and we are so grateful that indeed we are yours. And as Peter highlighted in the first chapter, our inheritance is secured because it's kept by you. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. But that doesn't mean we sit on our laurels and bask in your goodness and do nothing about that. Naturally flowing from that is ones who are showing Christ and all that it entails. If we're truly your children, we're going to act like you, our Father. So help us in that endeavor. <clears throat> Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness as we journey. Um, living on this globe is not easy. You know that firsthand. And in the midst of struggles and suffering, etc., as I look even around this room, Lord, thank you that you are there, that you will deliver here as well as in eternity. And we just thank you for the blessings that you have showered on us so lavishly, because ultimately through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. <clears throat>